Check, check. I could probably be a little check. louder. Are we recording? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to the Whatever Nevermind podcast, Joshua. You are officially the first repeat guest. How are you this wow. evening? I'm doing well, doing well. Getting to talk to you, always a good time. And, uh, you know, we, we text often about football and other shenanigans. But So it's nice to see you through the uh, power of the internet and always good to talk to you. Yeah, I wasn't sure after this uh, last Sunday's game if I was going to be able to make it. Um, I, I've called in sick all week. Um, right. I don't even have any sick days left because of you know, all this uh, COVID shutdown stuff. Um, but you know, that's just my squad needs me. You know what I mean? So I need to be. Oh yeah. I, I need to take the game pretty hard. But uh, at least uh, you, you you were able to uh, eke out a, a W on the road there in the Mile High City. Yeah, it was a tough one, man. It was uh, not only was it uh, you know a tough tough uh, win. I guess there's a tough win. I guess you can do, but I uh, you know I'm on Eastern time, mm-hmm. so the game wasn't over until like one forty five in the morning, and uh, I'm not as spry as I used to be about staying up all night. So so yeah, normally about the time the game started is about the time I'm normally you know rolling into bed. Did you manage to catch the whole thing or not? Well, oh, absolutely! I watched the whole thing live. Yeah, live. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I someone said something about that at work. Like, why don't you just DVR it and watch it after work the next day? And I'm like, you can't DVR live sports. Like, it it's never just works. Not gonna happen. No, like even if I shut my phone off and everything else, I would see somebody somewhere that I haven't seen in ten years. Be like, man, what about that Titans game last night, bro? And I'd be like, shut up. Yeah, it's uh, it, it, you can't really. I mean, I remember trying to like. Uh, I used to work night shift, uh, so I'd record like Monday night or Thursday night games, and on my VCR. And there wasn't a single fucking time that somebody <laughs> that probably hadn't talked to me in in two months at work came up and said, "Tough, tough loss for the Vikes." Hey, thanks. <laughs> you never, you know, I got married. You never fucking said a word about that. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, uh, I think it's worse too. Is I, I used to work with a guy that would uh, he would record uh, University of Louisville basketball games, mm. and he would watch them when he got got off work. And I would always somehow hear the score, and it was even worse, like knowing the outcome <laughs> and not being able to say anything about it. You're yeah. just like, and I'm the type of person that you know, if you've got a sunburn, I'm going to pat you on the back. You know, if you had someone die recently, I'm going to make a a bad joke and and not know that your your loved one died. You know, like I'm I'm that guy. So <laughs> so knowing the information and not being able to say it, I'll just be standing there like uh, they won by seven. You know, nice. You know, really uh, uh, I'll tell you a true story. What that that uh, I used to work at a place called Schmidt Printing in Byron, Minnesota, and there was a guy who uh, came to work all dressed up. And I made the joke like who died, and he's like my aunt. <laughs> I was like, I was like, see, I it happens I was, to everybody. Yeah, did, did, is he fucking with me, or am I just a dick? <laughs> hey, it turns out they weren't that close. But um, well, well, let's get back to whatever. Never mind. Coming in at number thirteen, 
on Rolling Stone's greatest grunge albums of all time is the first of three records from Nirvana, their debut record, Bleach. This was released on Sub Pop Records on June 15th, 1989, and produced by previous guests of the show here, uh, Jack Andino. 11 tracks, or is it 12? Is it 11 or 12? Do you have it in front of you? For some uh, reason, I think it's 12. I thought I had like 13, but... All right, well... It, between 11 or more tracks, and according to Wikipedia, 37 minutes and 19 seconds. Now, um, it did not chart upon its original indie release because it was in a fucking indie release. And it had sold a pretty respectable 40,000 copies in, nine, in North America before the release, so never mind. Since that point, it's basically double platinum. And, and uh, it is, of course, Sub Pop Records' best-selling album to date. And since nobody buys albums anymore, it's probably a record it will have forever. So, um, you know, I will mention that the last episode I, that just came out on whatever, never mind here, was the Alice in Chains record at 14 was Facelift. And from 14 to number one, eight of the 14 records are Alice in Chains, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, and Nirvana, the big four, if you will, uh, of grunge. So, But Nirvana, they, 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 they fill three of those slots, and today we're talking about Bleach. You would have been a little pup when this was released, and I, I, I didn't know anything about this record until Nirvana really blew up. Did you know much? I mean, I assume no. Uh, well, when they when this was released, actually, I was at a uh, record store, and uh, and the guy behind the <laughs> counter was like, "You need to check this out, bro." And I was like, "I do." And then uh, about a month later, they came through town, and I got to party with them, and uh, you know, yeah. So my 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 knowing of Nirvana went back years and years. <laughs> but no, no, I don't. I didn't know them. I was nine years old when this album came out, so yeah, yeah I I had not heard it. Yeah, I, I mean, I wonder what the original pressing was um, as far as the the number of copies. Uh, I should say the band at this time, of course, has Kurt Cobain and Chris Novoselic, but it was recorded prior to Dave Grohl joining the band. So a guy named Chad Channing was the drummer du jour for this record, but. Melvin's drummer Dale Crover appears on three tracks: uh, Floyd the Barber, Paper Cuts, and Downer. What What are your sources, bro? Mm, largely Google, uh, right. the internet. Uh, <laughs> I was there for everything that I mentioned. I was at the recording of this record. Um, I was the one who actually filled out the bill for the six hundred and six bucks or whatever it cost to to do this. But we'll, we'll get into all that kind of stuff. Uh, how about this? You, you've heard the record before today. Yes, many times. Okay, is is it a record that you uh, you own? Go back to? Do you like? Where does it uh, fall into me's fandom? Um, go back to? Man, I don't go back to a lot of Nirvana to begin with, but yeah. I definitely went through some phases. I, I think we may have talked about it in the last episode where I kind I kind of go through these these phases where I was like reading everything about Kurt Cobain, getting into all the albums, listening to bootlegs and things like that. So so yeah, I I got into this pretty heavy, um, you know, years later, probably in the mid '90s. But uh, but yeah, I even I until the last couple of days listening to it again, I hadn't listened to it in a very long time. I I've heard it enough in my life, but it's a record I would probably I would say I'm more avoided than anything. You know what I mean? I never bought right. it. Uh, I I I liked it. Never mind for a little bit, but got sick of it pretty quick. And then once Nirvana came big, and I the just. I, almost anything about Nirvana just didn't click with me. I didn't like the way Kurt's face looked. I didn't like the left-handed <laughs> guitar. I didn't like the uh, 
Oh, the super dry snark, even though it's basically who I am. Uh, just nothing about it. Even the logo, the the uh, the logo, which we'll get into, was kind of an accident. That really didn't land with me. And even the band name Nirvana is just kind of like, well, was you know Utopia taken? Uh, it just it, it seemed kind of <laughs> generic and and not really thought out for a band that was being uh, treated as as basically the next Rolling Stones or Beatles or something like that. Um, I, I uh, so, so getting back to it for this is basically something that uh, was a bit eye opening, and and then we'll get as we get into the songs. Uh, I'll save my my final thoughts for it, but for the most part, I heard it plenty just by going to people's houses, riding, being a passenger in a car in the '90s. You know what I mean? This was just a hard record to ignore. Going to record stores, that kind of stuff, it was going to be out there. It didn't get shit for radio play. Most of the songs that I remembered clearly were ones off of MTV Unplugged. So, um, but, uh, the, the, the short review I'll give you leading into this, it's better than I remembered it. Um, and I'll leave it at that because, uh, this is not one that I have ranked very high on my list. I think I can agree with that. Well, the record opens up with a song that um, would probably be my answer. If someone said, what did you think of the Nirvana record bleached in 1990? I probably would have said it blue. What do you got here that, for me, Toomey? Cue, uh, cue the Aaron Camaro laugh. Um, <laughs> obviously, being a bass player, you can never go wrong with a bass intro. Um, you know, this this is kind of just a precursor to the entire album. Uh, a lot of the vocal lines going along with the guitar lines. There's not a lot of counter melodies and things like that with Kurt, on, especially on this album. Um, And then, you know, obviously in the solo section, you get a a typical grunge solo, you know, that's not very flashy and maybe not even in tune. So, so, I mean, overall, uh, you know, this this is just a, like I said, a precursor to the entire album. Well, legend has it that it got kind of that low sound because Chris Novoselic accidentally tuned too far down. And um, uh, not realizing his bass was already at drop D, he dropped the drop C or something like that. And gave Blue its speaker-wrecking low end. So they recorded a bunch of tunes, but they decided to keep it for this one. Um, But uh, for the most part, they thought it wasn't that good of an idea, so they didn't carry it on beyond that. Anything they recorded, I guess they must not have kept. But as far as what I thought, I I, I don't think it's a good way to open a record. Um, It it didn't do it for me there. And I know when I talked to Bruce Pavitt, he actually mentioned having to resequence this record and and how Kurt didn't really care for that. But he's like, you got to understand, you want to get people interested with your first three songs, otherwise you're dead. Um, That said, I do think it's a pretty good song. And uh, yeah, it's kind of the, the embryonic phase of 
of Kurt developing his singing style and, and, and his songwriting. It's just a good example um, of what was to come, I guess. This, to me, sounds like, you know, something off an album before and a band kind of blew up. So uh, what what's our rating system today, Toomey? Do you have that ready for us? Man, you know, I thought about this one. You know, last one we did was L7 with the bloody tampons. I mean, do you go shotguns? You know, do you go whatever? You know, so I'm going to just, I'm going to play it safe and nice because I enjoy some Nirvana. So let's just go uh, uh, flowery dresses. (laughs) All right. How many flowery dresses are we giving blue? Uh, I will give it a four. I I did too. Up next is uh, my... uh, Esteemed co-host of the Cobras and Fire Show's uh, favorite title of any song ever, Floyd the Barber. True story that Loose Cannon did not know that Floyd the Barber was a reference to the character Floyd the Barber on the Andy Griffith Show, the the Mayberry deal. Excuse me? I do remember hearing that episode and rolling my eyes all the way to the back of my head (laughs) when uh, when Loose did not know who Floyd the Barber was. Thanks. Uh, But if there's a show on Amazon that nobody's watching, he's got plenty of quotes for you from that. Nice one. Uh, but oh, uh, Elsie, Elsie, not not not. This is uh, sadly this is not the let's pick on Elsie show. Um, that that'll be on a future episode. Uh, but uh, Floyd the Barber. has no idea who this character was. I gave it a two. <laughs> uh, I didn't really care for this too much. Um, getting into the song, kind of touching on what I just said, Gen Xers like Kurt loved taking mainstream culture and twisting it into unsettling perverse shapes. And so it was with Floyd the Barber. This is apparently a fictional uh, story of a fictional character based on a fictional character that uh, uh, molests children and then eventually um, th- the other show characters take turns dismembering his corpse. So... Nice. Uh, uh, anyway, I gave it a two. What do you got? I got I'm sorry. I gave us two flower dresses. Flowery dresses. Um, Flowery. I love the intro. I love the outro. There's just some. That's very. It's it's almost like a juvenile first band. <laughs> like let's do this, and then because you know the outro is the all three of them doing it, and then just the bass and the drums doing it, and then just the drums doing it, and then it's over. It's like it, that's like stuff that you would do in your like thirteen year old band, and and there's there's something like maybe some some juvenile charm about it. I don't know. But uh, I also gave Floyd the Barber uh, four flowery dresses. Wow. All right. Well, you liked it a little more than I did. Um, but, yeah, whatever. So uh, we got a four and a two. Um, the next uh, song made some headlines recently when the <laughs> singer from Puddle of Mud um, <laughs> did one. I can't even believe this thing got released. I can't see you 
It's funny because I was listening to it in the in the in the car today, and I was singing along with it. And I'm like, you know, this song really isn't that hard to sing. And so hearing it again, it's just like uh, you're hearing his version. I don't know if they like tuned differently, or they tuned up, or they needed to tune down, and he just couldn't get get to that note. Because I mean, Homeboy from from Puddle of Bud is not a terrible singer, but no, he, he did not have the range for the song. And it's pretty sad to say you don't have a range to do a Nirvana song. If anything, it seems like this would be in his sweet spot. So it almost right. felt like a tuning thing. Yeah. Supposedly he's been sober for a few years. So my first gut reaction was, well, he's drunk or high or something, um, <laughs> which 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 can cause those kind of issues. I but that song breed seems like the perfect cover for them. I don't know if they've done it or not, but that seems like where I would go if I was if I was if I if Puddle of Mud called me up and said, Baco, what song should we cover by Nirvana? I would say breed. You would just hang up. Yeah. Breed, click. <laughs> oh, just hang up in general. Yeah, yeah just that click. Uh, you know, this is one of those songs, man. That like, um, obviously, the unplugged version is the more popular version. Everybody's heard it, and it was, I think, it was a single off of that. Yeah, but it just kind of goes back to. I think Kurt is a great songwriter. I think he he had a, had a had a knack for for memorable, uh, you know. Uh, vocal lines and things like that so just kind of kind of hearing it this way you know you hear just kind of like a raw version of the song and then they obviously make it acoustic and it gets popular later yeah but uh but yeah it just kind of goes goes to show you no matter how bad this album sounds uh the the essence of the album is really good i dislike almost everything on that unplugged record for whatever reason i just it just nothing connects with me off of that um but the, this uh, the original studio version of the song I think is solid. Now this was written. A lot of musicians who are songwriters have had to deal with this, where they write all these songs and then one day their girlfriend's like, "When you gonna write a song for me, Kurt?" <laughs> so apparently that was the the um, the inspiration behind this. And apparently there's, there's some shitty lines in here, like, "I don't think you fit this shoe." <laughs> so I think he's like he's like uh, basically this song could have been called "I Think I'm Gonna." end things what was your rating here for about a girl uh, i gave it a four yeah for this version i guess i give it a three and a half we probably would get a, a, a one or a zero if we were doing the uh the unplugged version but excuse um, me how I, many songs have uh amy had you write for her <laughs> i have written one song for my wife yes she's never actually requested Something that something that like expresses love for something. I, I'm not very good lyrically and melodically with that kind of stuff. It's more dark and anger and upset with you know the church. That kind of stuff is, is more my cup of tea. And not a lot of songs that women want to hear like that about themselves. Anyway, I've written about a bunch of exes. 
That's been fucking a gold mine. Fuck you. 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 You fucking bitch. Oh, fuck you. All right. Um, well, next up is uh, track four on side one. It's called School. This kind of starts that whole another typical grunge thing to me is you know just repeating the same lines over and yeah. over again. Um, you know, obviously hearing a song about no recess, that's a bummer. Um, and then you know <laughs> just another awful guitar solo. So yeah, he said that was a joke at first, and then it turned out to be a really good song. And I'm like, no, no, I didn't. Um, <laughs> do you now? Are, are your kids? Uh, uh, how? What? You have kids in school? Are they doing distance learning or are they in person? Uh, the youngest one is doing all is doing online kindergarten, so that's pr- pointless. Are, are um, you playing this song the whole time? Yes. <laughs> no recess. You do not get no any recess. recess. So do they like leave the 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 Zoom computer on while they take a nap? Uh, it's nap time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it's just a lot of um. I mean, we have a work packet, yeah, and you know, just do this sure. stuff, and then they kind of just meet for like half an hour and. All the kids, you know, it's it's complete chaos. If you can imagine an entire <laughs> kindergarten class on a Zoom without with like three or four of them unmuted, and it's it's uh, I I the first day I did it, I was like, this is insanity. And next time, just hit record and release it as your next podcast. I might do that. Yeah, that's not a bad deal. Um, school, yeah, I'm kind of with you. This song just I I, I thought it was kind of stupid. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, uh, the, musically though, I actually I'm with Kurt a little bit here. Uh, I I think it's actually kind of a a fun song musically. I uh, oh I could probably push it to a four, but let's go with three and a half. I'm gonna surprise you with a four on this one. Up next is Love Buzz. Would you believe? Don't deceive me when I hurt you Just ain't the way it seems 
Love Buzz was a uh, an actual 45 they released. The, one of the first that Sub Pop ever put out at all was another song in here. What was the B-side to that? I had that. Love Buzz and Big it. Cheese, I Big think. Cheese, yeah. yeah, okay. Love Buzz and Big Cheese, one of the early releases from Sub Pop. So I, I believe this is one of the three songs Crover plays on. Is that right? I'm not sure who plays drums on Love Buzz. This might have been re-recorded for the record, but uh, um, this is a, apparently something that Chris Novoselic brought to the table. Uh, I don't know. And then uh, Kirk kind of liked it and kind of helped flesh out a tune from it. Yeah, this is a uh, shocking blue cover. And I went back and listened to the original today. And wow, it's pretty, uh, pretty nuts. I didn't, I never knew it was a cover until 10 minutes before we recorded, and I listened to it really quick. Please don't deceive me when I hurt you. It just ain't the way you see. Can't you hear my love buzz? Can't you hear my love buzz? Can't you hear my love buzz? Some of the you know the the baseline and stuff is all there, but it's it's definitely not a rock song at all. Um, and uh, something sort of tied to this song that uh, I learned through the process of this. Uh, now, Sub Pop was founded by Bruce Pavitt and a guy whose name it turns out is not Pwn Man. <laughs> his name is Poneman, Jonathan Poneman. Uh, when I was talking to Jack and Dino, he mentioned his name, and I was like, it, a light bulb went off. It's like, because I've been reading all about him and all these things getting, you know, research for this thing. It's like, I like the idea of, like, his last name being Pwn Man. But anyway, he... Be a better name. He, uh, he played the demo for Jack and Dino, who produced the EP and this record. But as far as the song, I, I, it's got that cool kind of punk bass opening. And yeah. Kurt, Kurt's vocal is actually pretty clean on this. This is a very punk tune, though. This is kind of more to the... This seems like very much the roots of, of what I anticipate this band would, would become. Yeah, and this is kind of the, the, the Kiss fan in me as a younger kid. was uh, you know I always thought of Love Gun when I heard this song. Like, can you feel my love gun? Can you feel my love buzz? <laughs> Uh, yeah, and I do really enjoy Kurt's vocals on this, especially the you know the Queen of My Heart. Uh, he kind of says that a little crazy every once in a while, so I really enjoy this one. Uh, what's the rating you got? Uh, we'll give this one a four. I'll give it a four as well. And closet kiss fan Kurt uh, Cobain. I don't know if he was that closet about it. He, yeah, like he, he was, was kind of snarky any time it came up, though. Uh, you know, but that was pretty much his. I guess his. I guess he was that way with everything, huh? So, it was, <laughs> right. All right. Up next, we have Paper Cut. be the most controversial of all of them um, obviously i think I, I love the melvin's intro very melvin's intro mm. the main guitar lines in this are very reminiscent of seasons in the abyss by slayer 
And then there's also an Alice in Chains uh, aspect to this song for me. So, I mean, it's very... Uh, and this uh, this album would have came out before Seasons in the Abyss, so I might need to call old uh, Jeff Hanneman and see what's going on there. How is he doing lately? Uh, sleeping. <laughs> you know, not so good, Paco. <laughs> Um, that's so good. Uh, uh, <laughs> that's going to come off kind of tasteless, but who cares? Uh, I had the same thing down. This, uh, this very much opens up like a Melvin's tune, and this, not by any coincidence, is one of the tunes that uh, Dale Crover plays on. It has that big booming drum sound there right at the beginning. They apparently tried to re-record this with uh, Chad Channing on drums. It just never got the vibe, so they said, fuck it, keep the original drum track, and they recorded all the other stuff. There, there was apparently some inspiration of a story of a local family who had imprisoned their children in the basement, only opening the door to feed them and changed the... Uh, the newspapers that they put down there for them to, to poop on. So it sounds like urban legend, but you know, Kurt, he liked to kind of spread that shit around a little bit. Um, and uh, maybe like it, he knew the guy, the guy was his dealer or something is, is the urban legend tied to that. But uh, well, having worked in the foster care system and having worked around kids with uh, issues, that's not as, as, as uncommon as you think. Really? Yeah. It's a mess, man. Well, uh, this, that definitely sounds like a goddamn mess. Um, and yeah, well, God, God, I, you would really hope that, uh, the foster care kids didn't end up with a drug dealer, but, uh, you know, well, it's more where the foster kids come, come from. Oh, foster sure. kids come from. Yeah. All right. Oh, that part I, I, I definitely would, would believe, but, uh, yeah, we, uh, we, uh, took in a couple foster kids a couple times. My mom was a, a nurse and had some Christian duty to, to help out, but, uh, it was always weird. Um, uh, looking back, maybe I would have been a little better uh, uh, foster brother if I had, <laughs> had my druthers. But uh, back to paper cuts, uh, I gave it a three. How about you? Uh, also gave it a four. Oh, right on. I'm not why you're sure you said also. I don't know either. <laughs> I think it's because I've given. If you're keeping track, I've given every song a four so far. Oh, fair enough. Um, well, before we fast forward to the end of side two here. And flip the cassette. Uh, there's a famous story, of course, about the amount of money that, that it cost to actually record this. The, the actual sum is $606.17, which is also the amount of money the record label didn't have. I actually had Bruce Pavitt on the show earlier. Let's listen to him tell this story. Well, I, speaking of not having a lot of money, the, the, the story of Bleach almost not getting financed, I think, is amazing. Do you want to share that? Well, I know it's been told a lot, but... Well, it is a ridiculous story, you know, when the world, the soon-to-be world's biggest band, which we did not fully realize at the time, they're like, we got to get in the studio, we got to get in the studio. And Kurt calls me up, he says, we got to get in the reciprocal, we're tired of waiting. And I said, I'll be honest with you, we're just, we don't have any cash. And I said, do you think, do you think you could front the money for the recording? In other words, can you loan me the money yeah. so I can give it back to you? And he, he basically hung up on me. Uh, but they did go in the studio, and it was financed by uh, Jason Everman, uh, who didn't actually play on the recording. I think w what happened was they went in, the bill was owed, and Jason Everman wound up paying it, even though he wasn't on the recording. But that $608 recording translated into two million sales so kind of is the profound lesson there is as far as understanding that if you create something that's really cool you don't have to spend a lot of money 
Uh, well, and I assume uh, did, did when they went to Geffen, was there there had to be some kind of um, buyout with you guys, or, or were they not under any contract? There was uh, a very famous contract. They were literally the only band on our label that was signed because they insisted that they get a contract. We Xeroxed one from a book in a library and used a little whiteout, changed a few things around. They signed the contract, and because they signed this contract that they insisted on having, we wound up getting points on a number of different records. And... uh, we wound up owning bleach and so forth. So I don't know. It kind of worked out for everybody. But we also, uh, before we get into some of these other facts here, uh, I would like to mention that Jack and Dino, who produced the record, was on the show. And before we get too far in here, I'll just quickly play what uh, his thoughts were on, on the recording of this band. I'll tell you this. Coming at number 13 on the list is probably a band you get asked about the most. Uh, Nirvana, you did the Bleach uh, album. Sure. Um, is, is it true you did that for a flat fee of about 600 bucks? Well, it wasn't a flat fee. We were charging hourly at the time, but I think the studio was only like 12 bucks an hour or something. Okay. Uh, but that's what it came to. Um, and uh, it was like something like $606 and some change. The, the number is, has been, I know Michael Azar had printed the number in his book. I don't remember the precise number. It was $606 and something. That was when you know, I went back and looked at the studio lock sheets and just added the fees up, and that's what I came up with. Um. So it's uh, it was a pretty quick one. It was eight track, you know, mm-hmm. but I knew they were a brilliant band. Could you kind of see what they were going to become, or is that's just too hard to predict? It was hard to predict. I didn't know they were going to become uh, as I didn't know the songwriting was going to become as poppy as it did. And I say that term very loosely, mm-hmm. uh, but. Um, I knew they were a brilliant band. The thing is, I you know, I, I record a lot of bands that I think are brilliant bands. That doesn't mean the rest of the world will agree. <laughs> yeah, so, I, I can relate to that. Know, yeah, who knew, you know? I mean, we, it wasn't what, you know, what happened was certainly not to the, the, the degree that I would have expected. How long did it take to record? Something. I mean, in, in total studio time, it was something like 30 hours. Oh, I guess we could do the math, huh? You said 12 bucks an hour. <laughs> something like that. Yeah, I don't know if that math works out, actually, because I was always a little bit pretty, I was pretty flexible about it, what hours I actually wrote on the lot. Sure. It was something like that. I mean, it was, you know, I remember looking, working it out one time, it was 30-something. So um, I have some facts if you'd like to kind of get into it here a little bit. Okay. All right. Well, these are things that, uh, according to, I think, Loudwire, you should know, or you probably don't know unless you're a super diehard. Um, well, we, of course, we know that Nevermind broke the band, but uh, a lot of Seattle scene purists consider Bleach to really be the only grunge album they did. What are your thoughts on that? Because for, I'll tell you straight out, personally, I don't think their sound changed enough from this album to two records later to, to really say, oh, this was grunge, everything else was something else. It was more polished, more produced with the bigger budgets, but to me, if this is grunge, the other two records are grunge. I agree with you 100% on that one. And it just kind of goes back to this album just sounds like shit. <laughs> um, the, uh, <laughs> the, um, Sorry, Jack. You know, it goes on to, to be much more, um, much more, much more better. It goes on to be better produced later on, and but you still have the makings of Nirvana songs here. You have Kurt's writing style, you have Kurt's vocal style, guitar style. Everything's here that was on Nevermind. It's just 
just poorly recorded. Sure. Yeah, that's how I feel about it, too. I mean, the songwriting is a little better. Like, he got more practice and started writing better songs. But the, the whole vibe is there. You can see the, the the growth pattern easily. So, but I will say, in 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 defense of this album sounding bad, I mean, for six hundred dollars, this sounds like a masterpiece. Oh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it, and for for how much time they had, for the equipment they probably had, everything that they had to work with, I think they made the best of. And I've definitely recorded, you know, albums in the past and probably spent six hundred dollars, and they didn't sound like this. So. So Easily. I'm not trying to shit on it too bad. So no, I'll I'll flat out say it. The, the first three records that Jesus Chrysler did all cost in that range between six and eight hundred bucks, yeah. and <laughs> none of them sound as good as this record. Um, so and and I, it kind of it shows you the importance of having someone who kind of knows how to work the knobs and 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 record a raw track and. Uh, um, and Jack and Dino, for what it's worth, I mean, he seemed to to really get at least the clean audio so if when you do have time to go back and re- do a a proper remix remaster you're not dealing with these oversaturated uh uh tracks that have a lot of effects that you can't take off that kind of deal yeah um uh, so, before right. you before you dive too far into the facts i did want to bring up jason everman here oh sure um uh, you know, it it seems like he he was in the band for a minute. He's obviously on the cover of the album, credited as a guitarist on the album, but didn't play. And you know, he did some touring for this thing. But I, I think I wonder how much the fact that he had the six hundred and six dollars and seventeen cents got him in the band. You know, like oh, they absolutely you- said it because he doesn't play on the record and he's credited as a guitar yeah. player. Do you think he ever got like a solid like even like hey, here's a thousand bucks, bro. Thanks for him. You know, this thing went double platinum, man. Right. Yeah, you got to wonder about all this stuff because even, you know, even the, the, the people, the producer and everything else that they, you know, they got the 600 bucks, the studio got the 600 bucks. But, you know, obviously in the, at the end of the day, you, you know, this thing sold 2 million albums. Yeah. You always wonder about the, the, the producers and things like that if they, if they took points. And you, don't, you know, probably don't even think about taking points Not on something level. that cost you $600 back in the day. But um, no, if anything, Jack and Dino says like uh, that he he probably actually didn't bill him for his complete time. He probably rounded right. down a little bit, and that was all he got was that that flat fee. But I think Jason Everman went on to to play on a couple of things, maybe so I, you know, that's been re released over the years. So I'm sure he gets a little chunk of cash. But I mean, also his his resume, if you look him up on on Wikipedia. He was also in a band called Mind Funk, which I've heard of. Hmm. He was also in Soundgarden for a, for a half a second, yeah. playing bass, and then uh, in a band called Old, which is uh, you know another band that's that's out there. And you know now he's been in the military and doing all this other crazy stuff. So uh, probably lived a very cool life. <laughs> yeah. you know, getting to say that he was in Nirvana, I wonder how you know how many chicks he picked up in a bar saying, you know that, that <laughs> album cover Bleach, that's me. But um, yeah, just just I. Well, he was a hard he was a hard ass in the military too. I mean, if, I think he might is he still in? I'm not sure, but he was a Green Beret, Special Forces. Yeah. So he probably had. I mean, th- there's the trifecta. I'm fucking Green Beret, Special Forces, and I was in fucking Nirvana. I I financed the entire first record <laughs> out of my own right. pocket, bitch. Yeah, you got to think at some point someone are ca- you know wrote him a check and was just like, here you go, man. I we appreciate everything <laughs> you've done. Um, well, he wasn't invited to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame c- ceremony, and I believe Chad Channing was. So I don't mm. know if there was just like some kind of distance there, or the fact that Dave Grohl never knew him. 
Um, I don't know, but uh, and you know he didn't really play on anything, so I get why the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame might not uh, bring him in, especially if they're not going to include Chad Channing. But man, just I mean, because Sub Pop, like uh, a drunken Chris Novoselic demanded that they make a record uh, that they give them a contract, an official binding contract. Because up to that point, everything they'd done has just been like kind of like a handshake deals with all the bands they did. If they didn't do that, Sub Pop probably would have went out of business. They could have, you know, Nirvana could have just taken the uh, the Bleach record with them, and then you know the record company, uh, I think it was DGC, they signed with. Uh, they could have just released it and, and kept all the money, but uh, they got a big old fat pile of cash to kind of keep things going there at Sub Pop, and it's probably why Bruce Pavitt has this giant little hidden area in Washington that he lives on. <laughs> yeah, and the very similar to, you know, Metallica and Megaforce, yeah. you know, where the, where they go on to um you know, they go into Electra and the, and the Megaforce name is on the early albums. Yep. You know, where you would buy this album on Geffen and then you would see Sub Pop on there. Oh, what's Sub Pop? I'm going to go check it out. Oh, they have all these other, you know, albums. Let's check out those albums too. So, very similar uh story there. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it's it's cool talking about Jason Everman because, like you said, his path is very, I don't know, ungrunge post his music career, <laughs> you know. So, but back to some other stuff here. Uh, Nova Selich said that when they were touring for, they had a, just a shitty van they would drive around, like most bands can relate to, leading up to recording this, and the, they had a, a, a cassette that they had dubbed. On one side side was a Smithereens record, and the other side a Celtic Frost. Now, I found this story in several different sources, but that's still. That seems a little too cute. It's like, oh yeah, yeah it's like, this is what we are influenced by—the Smithereens and Celtic Frost. You know, it's like, go, who would do that? We're so grungy. What are you thinking there? You think that uh, they literally listened nonstop to the Smithereens and Celtic Frost? Uh, I can see that. I mean, you know, depending on who dubbed the cassette, and maybe that's the only cassette in the van. And uh, now know, that part we... I can relate to, where you're a long road trip and there's not a lot to listen to. <laughs> yeah, especially when yeah. money's tight, you know. <laughs> oh yeah, that's definitely you know you. I've definitely been on some tours where we didn't have very many things in the van, and uh, I've heard the same album over and over. <laughs> you know, to where you want to get up and throw the CD out the uh, interstate, but yeah, it was. Uh, it, you know, it it could have happened. All right, and then as far as the lyrics, uh, apparently, and then Kurt told this in many different sources, so this is probably pretty legit. He just said he he really wasn't at the stage where he was thinking about them a lot, um, so he really didn't care that much until he got close to where he had to write something down that was going to be committed to it, and he would he would just kind of wrap it up there shortly before, like the night before they were going to record it or something like that, um, and it kind of it kind of comes off like that. Yeah, not like I said. the The lyrics are very, uh, you know, samey over and over, uh, repeated yeah. lyrics, and you know, you get a cool scream over over your thing, and you're not really worried about the lyrics. And you know, the, the lyrics were not ever a uh, huge thing of grunge to me. You know, there were there weren't a lot of epic t- tunes about you know dragons or anything with with grunge. And what about the title Bleach? That supposedly was inspired by. An AIDS prevention poster uh, geared towards uh, drug addicts with needles. Uh, something in the sign said it advised heroin users basically to bleach their needles prior to uh, shooting smack. That seems like um, that's a very uh, Seattle grungy kind of story to hear. And uh, to, to it, the, the working title was apparently too many humans. Um, and th- that's not an Elsie joke. I don't have them on here too. <laughs> that's apparently <laughs> what they were going to call it was too many humans. 
Well, that's not a bad... I, either one works. You know, with Nirvana and Bleach and Nevermind and, and you know, not, not a very huge... Uh, probably not a lot of time put into the album titles themselves. Yeah, and with no input from the band, the 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 whoever designed the album cover just picked that logo. I think it's Onyx is what it said here, but uh, and then the band just kept it as basically their their logo going forward. So that that uh, that actually worked out for them, I suppose. If you if you like it anyway, um, what do you, hey, what do you think about the album cover? Do you like it? Yeah, I mean, it's always been a very cool kind of indie album cover, and I, I I'm guessing you and your day to day job, you know, you look at things like fonts and album title and album logos and stuff and i know that their their logos a little offset so it probably just irks your uh your, 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 <laughs> no, your I, I, I don't, brain. I don't I, I, there's an artistic side to me though I, I understand it that would bother lc more than me uh he likes things <laughs> to be uh you know a plus b equals c this is centered perfectly cropped properly um i th- i would give this um i give the album cover five uh flowery dresses i think it's a fabulous i mean especially when you consider again all this is done so cheap and everything is it's like amazing how well it turned out you know what i mean yeah i mean that, that and that obviously always goes back to the songs a good song is a good song and there's a lot of good songs on this album yeah um and uh the photo was a a, a picture of the four of them performing, uh, because Everman did actually play. Uh, we we almost made it sound like he didn't ever do anything with the band. He he toured and played with them for some time. He just didn't play yeah. on this record. But uh, right. Cobain's girlfriend took the picture, probably with one of those goddamn disposable cameras, because everything had to be super <laughs> fucking cheap and turn out perfect. But uh, and then yeah, it was inverted uh, for for the name. But I I I give it high marks. Very good album, and the uh, or very good album cover. And the length, 37 minutes, 19 seconds. I always like that, too. Yeah. <laughs> Short and sweet. Yeah, let's get to the. Let's get to it. All right, well, let's get back to the record then. Side two of the cassette. You flipped her over, dropped her in the shitty van, and you've been listening to this thing nonstop. This Celtic Frost and the Smithereens. It opens up with Negative Creep. to you here negative creep was basically in the words of kurt just one big rush job the, he calls the riff the work of a neanderthal magic it's a distorted two-note jackhammer and um i think that's a pretty fair description uh kurt, kurt this is one of the songs that i came across that he basically said i didn't care about lyrics at the time he, he was talking about himself when he said uh, negative creep which would explain why it says i'm in the first possessive a negative creep Anyway, uh, I like the song. Um, I tried to find my rate. This one I had a three and a half on too. This is one where the the kind of the androgyny of grunge kind of comes out a little bit with the daddy's little girl and a girl no more. Yeah, you, you know it's not, it's very anti jock. You know we're gonna we're gonna talk yeah, about yeah very you know, much. We're, we're gonna talk about you know wearing dresses and and you know calling ourselves little girls and things like that. And so and then also love the screams in this one. This is where it's you know he's obviously not textbook screaming. He's just emotionally screaming. So overall, man, great song and uh, I love the, the love the riff. And uh, what was your rating? Uh, I gave it a four. 
All right. <laughs> uh, I love them fours. Uh, never play craps with Toomey. He always rolls a four. Well, the next track, Scoff, I just wrote down that I think the drums are horrible. pattern when he's saying the give me back part he 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 has a very cool little give me back not give me back not give me back just kind of cool just that you know obviously once again just repeating but uh but it was a very cool thing and then uh yeah man i'm just uh i'm, I'm along for the ride at this point it, it seems like there's there's several examples on this record where it's like once he gets the hook he stops He's like, that's all we need. Yeah, <laughs> yep. just do it 20 more times. <laughs> yeah, he's just one of those dudes that, you know, where a lot of vocalists, and I'm assuming you do the same, where you'll kind of have more of a, a scat vocal of, yep. of, of of just sounds. And then you're going to go back and write lyrics to those sounds. And he just kept the sounds. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, it's the melody. That's what you're trying to establish. But uh all right. Um, well, I gave it uh, uh, three flowery dresses. Did you give your rating on this one? Uh, I have not, but I gave it a four. All right. Up next is Swap Meat. Barking chainsaws. This is somebody's right up here on, I think it was Loudwire. Um, there's sympathy and empathy in Kurt's lyrics, but precious little affection. Um, and uh, Kurt would later go on to say their whole the whole mentality is based on junk, grease, dirt, and poverty. Uh, I like the song. Um, it's it's a really fun riff. Um, it to me again, this is a like the the drums weren't captured as clean as some of the other ones. Which is okay because I, I like going back to early records by bands and, and kind of hearing the the progression from like where they were to where they got to. So if you're okay letting a band not sound perfect and let a record you know grow, let a band grow and develop, this is a, a great tune. I think honestly, this song is is kind of funny because you think a, a song about a swap meet or entitled swap meet is not actually going to be about a swap meet, but then you listen <laughs> to the lyrics and you're like, wait a minute, this song is actually about going to a swap meet. So. Well, what the, um, who's that guy, that, that uh, kind of more current douchebag? Uh, Macklemore, he's got a song called Thrift Store. That's all about yeah. going to the thrift store. I got $20, that's all I got. Thrift store. <laughs> but, uh, so I, I love a good swap. <laughs> you don't want to do talk about Macklemore? Uh, well, I also love a good thrift shop. Okay, know? yeah, I did too. Uh, I, yeah, especially as a, as a youngster, I loved uh, swap meets, but 
Um, now that it's just kind of they've they kind of turned into more antique farms where the the everybody thinks everything they have is worth way more than it is, and I end up buying nothing. But no, I like a good swap meet. I like a good dirty swap meet. You know, the uh, I like a good yard sale. If, if the DVDs aren't bootleg, I don't. That's not my kind of swap meet. I want the bootleg, <laughs> the greasy shit. I always carry around a picture of Aaron Camaro, and I'm like, has this guy been here yet? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, well, fuck. And then I leave. They're like, they're like he's right there. And then all of a sudden, you're... <laughs> <laughs> he's looking at fucking wrestling dolls and... <laughs> Finding uh, CDs for uh, Aaron's cut-up bin. Oh, yeah. No doubt. Future episode. <laughs> this is great. I got to buy 2,000 of these to get six that I can fucking put on the show, but... Uh, uh, Aaron Camaro is a national treasure. Absolutely, uh, the uh, the only cheesehead in my life. Um, well, swap meet. What did you uh, rate it? Uh, I'm not going to ruin it for you, but I gave this one a three. Uh, changing it up there, Mister Toomey. All right. Well, uh, the, the the next track sounds like the title of an Adam Sandler movie. It's called Mister Mustache. The only thing I have written down is that I I am proud of eating cows. <laughs> yeah, this is uh, was no was Kurt a vegetarian? I, uh, you know, there's no telling with him. Yeah, right. I mean, there is there meat in heroin? <laughs> well, I will say, I mean, he he, he admits in the song. There's no beef based he, heroin. Well, I mean, I think one of the things you cut heroin down with is a uh, knife uh, beef beef broth yeah so. beef bullion <laughs> you gotta cut your meth with beef bullion yeah i mean that's the best meth is uh, uh cut with beef that's, a, that's the that's the upper olympia area of washington way oh yeah really it's almost like in canada yeah um <laughs> the uh in this song the, title, lumber, the lumberjack way I kept thinking of uh, Vinnie Vincent and his mean Mr. Mustard comment. I kept, oh, nice. Uh, I, you yeah. know, so, so if we just had a mean Mr. Mustache. Yeah, nice. Yeah, this is a cheap shot at hipsters, which is weird because he became a, basically the poster child for hipsters. Um, or titular hillbillies was another phrase that came up across uh, researching this song. This is, uh, this is a, a punk tune, though, just straight up punk. Uh, I I uh, and I and I dig that. I think that's kind of the what they what they do best. If I'm listening to Nirvana, I want kind of that rough edge stuff. This is a four for me. That's funny because I actually gave this one a two and a half. Yeah, we uh, definitely like this record for different reasons. <laughs> uh, all right, now the official release ends with uh, the a, a track called Sifting. Now uh, this is a slow, acrid grind of bleach. Just <laughs> Never mind. Try, try that again.
but uh, you know it, it's a good closing track very melvin sounding um really like the chorus a lot and uh, yeah just uh, as an overall album this is a great ending it's five and a half minutes long it's a little bit longer than most nirvana yeah. songs so it's just kind of you know it's it's there for you and uh yeah very and they definitely wear their melvin's influences on their sleeves not o- only on this song but on the entire album you know, but it, it is odd, though, that the only two songs that you picked up, uh, you mentioned the Melvins, were the same two that I wrote Melvins down on. So uh, apparently it's clear if you're a fan of, or if you're familiar with the, the Melvins anyway. I think this is one of the strongest vocals on uh, on the on the record as far as, like, the recording. Uh, his, his voice sounds really strong on this track. Not that not to criticize the rest of it, I'm just saying it really pops here. I, I agree. Um this is a, a really good closer. As much as I really didn't care for Blue as an opener, if I listen to this record from beginning to end like I have a few times uh, for the last week, th- this is a good progression. I like the way it, it wraps up here. Uh, uh, I gave it a four. Uh, I give it a three and a half. There is a deluxe edition out that had two more tracks on it. Did you do any research on that, um, on either Big Cheese or Downer? Uh, no. I didn't either. I stuck to, like, I, I, I stuck to basically... Um, you know, the format I, I established initially that we're reviewing basically the original release. So uh, I know Big Cheese was the, the side two of the, the single for Love Buzz, but uh, it, it's out there if you want to check it out, people. I, I, they, they were recorded around the same time. Now, uh, Big Cheese also features uh, Dale... Oh, wait, no, Downer features Dale Crover on drums. So if you want to check him out, go ahead. Uh, the, uh, in the deluxe edition that was supervised by uh, producer Jack and Dino, uh, these are included. There's also like so, like a live concert from this time uh, on there, and, and there's a D, if you, there's a, a next level deluxe that has a DVD of a show that kind of stuff. So uh, for your diehard Nirvana fans, you probably already got it and seen it. So I don't, I'm probably not doing a whole lot there. But I always give the uh, the guests the final final thoughts. So I will uh, put mine out right now. We already touched on my opening line here. I can't believe how good this record sounds for 600 bucks. Like I said, I did three albums myself for a budget of between seven and eight hundred bucks. I don't remember exactly how much. Um, it just 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 shows you how important it is to to record in a studio where they may not have the best equipment, but they know how to use it. That kind of thing. Um, and I, I, I our first record was recorded on um, the drums recorded on Kelly Keegy of Night Rangers drum set, which was a I don't know like a fifteen thousand dollar DW kit. With uh, mics, pre- it was pre-mic, so you basically just plug cables into the side. The thing was professionally set up for recording. So, with even with that benefit, it, the drums don't sound as good as Jack got out, out of this, which I got to believe is a much shittier drum kit. Uh, maybe a better player. I don't know. Sorry, Shags. Uh, <laughs> now it, that said, it's it still has that raw indie sound. It's not a polished record by any means. Um, if I liked Nirvana more. This record would probably rank much higher for me on this list, but as this was a record I never bought, I like I said, I heard it more just hanging out with people or just being at a record store that was playing it. Uh, I, I just never really connected with it, and even going back and listening to it, while I like it probably more than I did than I thought I did, I really don't care for it that much. I'm, I'm not looking forward to going back to it, but I will concede it's a great precursor. If you like Nirvana, this is a perfect. I, I, they do a really nice progression there this record uh, never mind and then into um uh in utero but uh, that said this slides all the way from 14 on my list to <laughs> number 24 excuse me wow 
I only have one record ranked lower in this, and if anybody's been keeping score at home, they know we haven't got to it on the list yet, so that means it's ahead. I will spoil this. It's not a Nirvana record, so this is my lowest-ranked Nirvana record. I mean, I've kind of said it a few times over over our, our discussion here about it being, uh, you know, it sounds terrible, uh, but again, <laughs> 600 bucks, you know, sounds whatever. Sounds great for 600 there, bucks. Yeah, that sounds great for 600 bucks, but, you know, uh, so... The songs are there, the vocals are there, the performances are there, everything's there that, that they carried on over to Nevermind and then changed the entire landscape for 1989. I mean, this is a uh, sounds very bizarre for 1989. So um, this actually moved up in my rankings from, uh, what is this, 13 in the normal 13, rankings. Yep. I threw it up to number eight. Wow. Nice All right. So... Um, which is why you're probably the guest for this show, uh, for this episode. But uh, I think I said this came in at 14. I, I misspoke. This is number 13. And yeah, it goes down to 24 on my personal list. But uh, So you have it all the way up at number eight. Uh, that's that's pretty solid. You're not planned to be back for the other Nirvana records. Do you like them better than this one? Or how would you rank it? If Just rank those three albums for me. Uh, probably in, in reverse, I would probably say in utero or never mind. And then this one. Okay. So in the order they released, basically, uh, from worst to first, did I say that right? In utero, the best, never mind second, uh, there we go. Bleach third. Yeah. So that's uh, what about incesticide? (laughs) Uh, you know, I did have that one too. So that one, uh, that's a, that's a two, two B. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Well, Always love talking to you, Josh. Uh, the te- Tennessee Titans are my favorite AFC team, pretty much only because uh, I'm talking to you right now. If you were off camera and Sinzak was there, I'd be the Chiefs. And, you know, I would just basically kowtow to whoever sat in front of me unless they were a fucking cheesehead or a cowboy fan. But, uh, Likewise. <laughs> no, nah, it's always fun talking football with you. Um, hey, by the I should ask you, were you surprised that uh, how calm it was talking to me after the Viking game uh, last Sunday, considering how it went uh, it, uh, did I come off unfazed or was I uh, in shock uh, I feel like you were um, I, I thought you might have just been drunk and uh, you changed the subject mighty quick uh, started <laughs> making fun of uh, the uh, the Saints coach and uh, so yeah so so just <laughs> that I motherfucker just you, you f- pretends on. to chew gum him and Pete Carroll those guys who, who chews gum for three hours all the time you never see him spit it out you never see him uh, 10 minutes without gum? Nope. Always. They're fucking fake. They think it makes them look like badasses. <laughs> Maybe with his face mask, he just has extra pieces of gum <laughs> in his face mask that he can swap out. Oh, man. But, uh, well, uh, what, and, uh, we, the people do love it when we talk sports, but what do you got going on in the world of podcasting right now? I, you, your fifth anniversary just popped. Uh, that's a pretty big deal. I mean, uh, you're closing in on 8,000 episodes. Of the mm-hmm. Talk to Me podcast, what else is going on? Um, as a, as of this recording, I have started a side podcast. I, I take my take all of my cues from Baco, and, and I have to do a sidecast. So I did a. I'm doing a Pantera show entitled "Drag the Waters," where I'm finding all of the uh, tertiary characters of the Pantera Ooh. universe and and bringing them in. And uh, tertiary, and, and, uh, you like that? That's and big the, for Louisville. Uh, <laughs> well, that's my Tennessee education. Uh, I'm sorry, education Louisville. 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 Uh, so, yeah, so I'm bringing in all those people, man. I've been uh, tracking down, you know, producers and engineers and mixers and, and um, uh, interviewed Terry Glaze, the original Ooh. vocalist of Pantera. Uh, I've got, uh, I've got. Um, he can't be too busy these days. 
And He'll the, never uh, the, listen the to this that, show. Uh, what is his name? Uh, Mark Eglin, the uh, uh, the guy that co-wrote the Rex Brown book. Oh, nice. Uh, got him on. Uh, and he did got, K.K. I, Downing, too, I think. Yes, he did, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, um, uh, you know, a few other people in the works. So as of right now, I've got a few cool episodes coming up with that or out, depending on how, you know, a month or two from recording this comes out. So it's, it's been a lot of fun just, uh, just you know, looking at the records and uh, seeing who produced, mixed, and and plus with Pantera too, they put out so many home videos that you kind of got to know the crew yeah. and the tour manager and everything else. So, so a lot of those guys are, if you're a true diehard fan, uh, are were as popular as the band itself. I think those videos might have been the first time I saw male nudity not in a porno. Yeah, yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta and tell you that- though that the, your, your podcast theme is probably the least shocking thing I've ever heard you say, and you're not really a controversial guy. So, but you're also a great podcaster, so I guarantee it's going to be good. Well, yeah, it's basically just talk to me, but. Just changed the name. <laughs> yeah, same logo. <laughs> because I mean, even. I've already had like uh, you know I've had Bobby Tongs who was a kind of kind of a character with the Pantera guys. Rita, who was uh, Dime's longtime girlfriend, and then, and then obviously Phil and Summel has been on a couple times. So I mean, it's pretty much just talk to me under a different name. I forgot that because uh, I, I until you brought it up the other day, I, I have the um, the Kindle version of, of Rex's book, and I'm probably about a third of the way through it. But I got it when it came out. Mm-hmm. And I read everything I read basically on a, on a, I can't remember I was flying Arizona or something like that. So uh, I really got to fucking open that sucker up. Every, this happens all the time with, especially with Kindle books. Like, <laughs> yeah. oh, I'm, I'm interviewing Michael Sweet again. Well, let me see if I can finish his book this time. <laughs> uh, I, I'm, I'm about a, halfway through. Did you ever through. finish that Ron Keel book? Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I did finish the Ron Keel book uh, uh, after he gave it to me, the cheap ass. Nice. Uh, but uh, oh wait, no, that would make me the cheap ass, but. So I assume that's going to be out on the Talk To Me feed, or is it going to be it's kind of its own thing? Uh, I, you know, I'm I'm going back and forth. I think I'm going to put it out on its own feed. Really? Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, good luck with that. I look forward to listening to it. Of course, by the time people are hearing this, I've probably already digested every episode that you've had out. So, um, but yeah, you, you do a good products, and, and your your passion for Pantera is obviously legit. You're you're my go to guy. Uh, so I'm looking forward to hearing it. I appreciate it, man. I can't wait to can't wait for everybody to hear it. I can't we can't wait to for myself to hear it because some of the interviews aren't done yet. So it's going to be a lot of fun doing it. And uh, yeah, just once again, thanks for having me on. Always a blast to come on this show and the Cobras and Fire podcast and everything else in the Decibel Geek Podcast Network world. <laughs> we, we stopped saying that all about a year ago, I think. <laughs> yeah, and, and if Chris Inzax wasn't, only because Toomey gave me shit about it weekly. Uh, I liked it, though. Yeah, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, well, thanks for coming on and talking about the number 13 record on the list here, Bleach from Nirvana, their debut album. Uh, you want to wrap this up? Whatever, man. All right, never mind.
dinner time. Cooking dinner, cooking dinner, cooking dinner, cooking dinner, cause my kids don't care. I'm a man, I'm a man, I'm a man, but I can still cook dinner, even though I'm a man. Ow. Here's your corn, here's your peas, here's your chicken, here's some weed. Oh wait, not good to give kids weed. I wrote right. a Nirvana-inspired Toomey's Cooking Dinner song while you were gone. It'll probably <laughs> be the Easter egg. Chicken and gelatas. <laughs>